because we're so focused on the pill, the magic pill that will come and will just, you know, fix our problems without us doing anything. And really, it's our lifestyles that have led to this epidemic of heart disease. And unless we address those key sort of things, it, it will be, it will remain the most common cause of death in our society. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me is Hader Varic. He trained in internal medicine, cardiology, and advanced heart failure at Harvard Medical School and Duke University, and is the Associate Director of Heart Failure at the Boston Veterans Affairs Hospital, Associate Physician at Brigham and Women's Hospital, and Instructor at Harvard Medical School. He writes frequently for the New York Times and for journals such as the New England Journal of Medicine. He's the author of two books, Modern Death, How Medicine Changed the End of Life, and his latest book, which he is here to talk about today, State of the Heart, Exploring the History, Science, and Future of Cardiac Disease. Hader, welcome to Science for the People. Uh, thank you, Rochelle, for inviting me and for giving me a chance to talk about something I'm super passionate about. So what made you want to write this book in the first place when you kind of look at your field and then looked out at the information that was already there for lay audiences? What gap did you spot that you were hoping to fill? Well, I, I mean, heart disease is not a niche disease. It is in, far from it. It's the most common cause of you know, people dying both here in the United States, but also around the world. And I felt that a lot of times that heart disease just didn't have the same sort of cultural cachet, that it was almost in some ways the forgotten disease, because I think for so many people, it, it seems to feel like something that's, uh, you know, that we've almost somehow solved and we can kind of move, move past. Even in uh, this age of uh, COVID-19, uh, the number of people who are passing away of heart disease far, far, far exceeds that even from this global pandemic. And I really wanted to go beyond just what, you know, what people knew and really delve into some of the really rich stories uh, and the complexities behind uh, what has almost become uh, sort of an anonymous condition that people just kind of live and die with. So I often like to start by defining terms we've all heard and we've all used and um, maybe even have used correctly by chance, but we probably don't entirely know how to define if someone actually asked us to define them. And it definitely occurred to me whilst reading the first pages of your book that heart disease is probably one of those terms. So what are we actually talking about when we say heart disease? Yeah, so that's a great question. And essentially, heart disease is an umbrella term for all conditions that affect the heart. But really, the vast majority of those conditions are due to a single process. And uh, that process is, is, it's a bit of a tongue twister, but, you know, stay with me. It's called atherosclerosis. Uh, and essentially, this process is the slow, chronic buildup of cholesterol-filled plaques in your blood vessels. And this process essentially starts uh, really since we, we are teenagers and builds up over time. And it, and these uh, plaques can build up in the blood vessels supplying the heart, uh, the blood vessels in the brain, the blood vessels really uh, anywhere in your body. Uh, and if they undergo some type of catastrophic event, if they essentially these they... Um, erupt or explode, they can cause an acute blockage. So this is what essentially happens when you have a when you have a heart attack. That one of these plaques will rupture. It will cause a blood clot to form in one of the blood vessels that supplies your heart, and you will have no oxygen going to your heart, causing you to have a heart attack. If the same thing happens in uh, one of the blood vessels in your brain, uh, this will lead to uh, uh, the uh, development of a stroke. And if this happens in your leg, it could cause you to have a limb amputation. So even though atherosclerosis is the leading cause of death around the world, very few people actually know that term. Uh, and it, But it is the vast majority of reasons why people have heart disease. Uh, there are other forms of heart disease uh, that are less common, but also very serious. One of those is a condition called heart failure. And this is a con chronic condition which essentially represents a failure of the heart to essentially do its main job, which is to, you know, pump blood to your entire body. Uh, it has become the leading cause of people being admitted to the hospital in the United States 
uh, and can be a condition that can last a very short amount of time, leading to an untimely demise, or some people can live with it for decades. So those, I would say that those two conditions essentially encapsulate what, you know, what most people would refer to uh, generally as heart disease. I found the term heart failure quite interesting while reading the book because the term sounds immediate, in very immediate, like it's happening very quickly. But as you say, it's not always the case. And in fact, you open the book with a story of a patient who was actually startled to discover they had been living with heart failure for two decades. I mean, uh, to me, I feel like, how would you not know that? But of course, that's sometimes how things go. Yeah, heart failure is a curious term. Um, I don't think, I, I think it, uh, and in fact, there's been, a, and, and this is coming from someone who, you know, this is what I do, my, the specialty I trained in and practice is heart failure, advanced heart failure. And, um, but it is a curious term because I think a lot of people react to it as if, you know, with the feeling that, oh, the heart is actively failing as if death might be imminent. Uh, but really, it is a chronic condition that people can live with for a long period of time. And because it sounds so awful when you first hear it, I think a lot of clinicians are reticent to use it um, because they worry about how, um, you know, how it might make someone feel. So sometimes they might, you know, use a euphemism to say that, oh, your heart function isn't that great or your heart isn't pumping that well, when essentially what they're talking about is heart failure. And 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 really it is a this condition that is not very well understood but over time has been one of those areas where we've actually seen the greatest amount of progress as far as medical treatments is concerned we you definitely get into it in the book quite extensively and there's no way we'll get to cover it all here in this conversation um but it definitely is amazing how much we know about the heart now that we didn't not that long ago and how much we've advanced in being able to treat heart conditions i mean it's one of these kinds of consistence I find whenever I'm looking into topics about medicine or the history of medicine. I'm always uh, repeatedly shocked or surprised by how recent everything is um, and how many kind of wrong ideas we've had about medicine and our own biology. Uh, I suppose after all this time, I should just expect that now, um, but I still find it surprises me. Yeah, and actually, if you think about it, heart even though heart disease and uh, I would say atherosclerosis specifically has been a process that's been found even in the most remote human beings ever found. So, uh, the the old the oldest human being we've ever found was essentially a mummified body in uh, the Swiss Alps, and even and this was this was an individual who had been unfortunately killed with an arrow and had been and died essentially in a block of ice that was found in a in a very preserved fashion, and even this person uh, had uh, atherosclerosis in their blood vessels, but, but, but heart disease as a cause of death was very, very rare. In fact, up to the you know, 19th century, it was almost no one ever died of heart disease uh, based on studies that were done in London and in Boston. But it really was in the 20th century where it really just took off and really peaked around the time of the Second World War, where every other person died of heart disease. Um, and so even though it still is the leading cause of death, we've made lots of progress in it, and, 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 yet, and yet still it remains a young disease in sort of the arc of our history, which is, I, I, I find, something that's pretty fascinating. Absolutely. I I want to talk a little bit more about heart attacks in particular, uh, which you touched on briefly, uh, sort of a little bit more of a definition of what they are. There were, were things that I wasn't aware of. Um, like you mentioned in the book that what qualifies as or is recognized as a heart attack is currently changing. So I'd love if you could unpack that a little bit here for us. Yeah, sure. So, so I think I think everyone uh, has heard the term heart attack because it is it is such a dramatic term, and it's and it is a condition that's very common. So, you know, what happens in a sort of classic heart attack is that um, so your your heart, even though it is pumping blood, it also needs its own supply of oxygenated blood so that it can keep doing what it's doing. 
And this is done by these very small blood vessels called, called the coronary arteries. And these are blood vessels that essentially wrap the heart around uh, and supply it with oxygenated blood. And so if you have any type of uh, obstruction of this blood flow in these blood vessels, which is essentially the most you know critical piece of real estate in your entire body, um, you will you, the heart muscle that is now deprived of oxygen will un- essentially start to die off and turn into scar tissue. And this is um, and when someone experiences it, this results in the sort of classic image of the you know the person clutching their chest, uh, feeling like an elephant is sitting on it. Uh, but not all heart attacks can be that traumatic. Sometimes people uh, can have atypical symptoms. Um, sometimes just something as simple as nausea or vomiting may, in fact, be a manifestation of a heart attack. And sometimes those simple symptoms can be even more subtle. Classically, our technology was very limited. We only had, you know, the the EKG, which is the electrocardiogram, which is essentially the thing that you see on television screens, uh, the green sort of squiggly line that goes flat when someone... <laughs> Uh, someone dies. Uh, but now we have much more sensitive means of detecting damage to the heart. And those that's usually done through blood tests called troponins, which are proteins that can be found in the blood when heart muscle starts to die off uh, or is not doing well. Uh, and so, so now we actually are able to detect a lot more people having ongoing damage to the heart than we would. And so, we were, if you only rely on the electrocardiogram, we had actually been missing a lot of heart attacks. And now we are able to um, pick up a lot more of them. The contrary issue here is that perhaps these new tests might actually be too sensitive, uh, because sometimes even people who don't have a heart attack or don't have an ongoing uh, any ongoing sort of uh, damage to the heart may have presence of these antibodies. So you know if you're not careful, we may swing a lot you know in the other direction where far from missing heart attacks, we're attributing a lot of people as having heart attacks when they might not be having so. But so far that hasn't you know come to play. If anything, I, I think we've we've the, even these new tests have actually helped us really pin down. Um, this condition with even more precision than before. And I know as well, I knew this a little bit before reading the book, but it was great that you went into it, that historically we've had um, kind of a single view of what the symptoms of a heart attack were, in part because of what we could detect. But that has also kind of hand in hand gone with a lack of research in our studying of women um, and heart disease and women and heart attacks, but also quite often women's experiences of or the symptoms are, are vastly different than the kinds of experiences that men have. Totally. And if you look at, uh, so first of all, just to give some basic facts, uh, heart disease is not just the leading cause of death in men. It is also the leading cause of death in women. Uh, women generally tend to have heart disease later than men, uh, but because they also live longer uh, than men in general, they, they do catch up and essentially men and women have an equal burden of heart disease. Um, and and women and but but when younger women do have heart attacks, the studies actually show that their outcomes are actually worse than men. And I, and one of the reasons that happens is because of a few different things. One is that um, that women, at least some studies suggest, not all, but some studies suggest that women are not as likely to have the usual symptoms of heart attacks that we classically read about, such as you know, the chest pain or chest pressure or difficult breathing, a lot of women can have what are called atypical symptoms such as nausea, vomiting, just feeling tired uh, or fatigued. Um, but but I will just sort of note that that's not shown in every study. The other reason is just simply a matter of education, both for patients but also for physicians. A lot of people, a lot of women don't actually know that they're actually at pretty high risk for heart disease. Um, because we've just not done a good enough job of educating people. So women have, on, in general, younger women with heart attacks have actually have greater delays seeking care. Uh, so women might be less likely to call 911 or seek medical care when they have when they're having a heart attack. And one of those reasons might be this that they just don't recognize themselves as at risk of ha- having heart disease. And the third is that there's also it, it, not as clear recognition amongst physicians 
that women are at high risk for heart disease. So the diagnose, diagnosis can be delayed uh, a bit in women. And then there's some conditions that we're only just learning a bit more about that are much more specific to women, such as a condition called um, a corny dissection that can happen in women, which until a few years ago, we didn't really recognize it as a specific entity, but one in which essentially there's a small tear that can happen. So instead of a plaque rupturing, you have a tear in the blood vessel that happens spontaneously um, that can manifest as a heart attack. So so again, I think, uh, you know, for, for listeners, I think the key sort of takeaways there is that women are at a very high risk for heart disease, just like men, uh, and that there needs to be, you know, just better vigilance with regards to women taking care of their heart and to really advocating for for it, not just, um, you know, at their homes, but also when they're at a pay, uh, in the hospital. You also talk a little bit in the book about the challenges when you combine heart disease and pregnancy, um, mm-hmm. because a pregnancy, uh, regardless of the fact that it is a very common thing that many people in the world participate in, many women uh, get pregnant regularly. Well, I guess a woman doesn't regularly get pregnant, but you know what I mean. Um, but pregnancy is really hard on a woman's body, and uh, that can sometimes have ramifications if there's existing heart problems that are maybe known or not known. But also, um, my understanding based on reading your book is that uh, pregnancy can sometimes actually um, cause heart disease. Yes. And, uh, and this, they're, they're, you know, I think this is a historic uh, blind spot as far as uh, heart disease is concerned. And this really started uh, from the from the early sort of thalidomide uh, fiasco, if you may, uh, which was so, so just for listeners, thalidomide was a drug that was designed for morning sickness, wasn't really tested well, and led to tens of thousands of women um, develop having babies with very very significant congenital malformations uh, in their in their babies, uh, and it was actually because of the heroism of one woman. Uh, at the FDA, Francis Kelsey Oldham, who was an FDA uh, safety officer who actually single-handedly prevented the drug from being uh, approved in the United States because she was so adamant that she wanted to see the actual safety data. So this, so, but what, what one of the impacts of that, this whole fiasco was that Many pharmaceutical companies never started to exclude pregnant women from all of their studies. So a, a lot of common cardiovascular medications uh, have actually never been tested in this population. So even though the NIH has now started to pull back and, and the FDA has as well and now requires more data uh, from pregnant women, there, there's a lot of gaps that we have in really just some of the routine drugs that we give um, to protect people's hearts. But we're also learning that there, that there's special, that there, there's some specific conditions that, uh, develop, that can develop in some women, um, in relation to pregnancy that can manifest as pretty significant heart disease. Um, one of those conditions is a condition called, uh, peripartum cardiomyopathy. Uh, so, and uh, really it's, uh, it is the development of heart failure. Um, in the, that happens kind of close to when uh, a woman gets gives birth, and it can be before birth, but also and and more commonly it can develop after birth. And we still don't know exactly why this condition happens, but now I think because of so much more recognition, this has really become um, a hot topic and is under you know, and a lot of people are working very hard to understand it. What we also know is that uh, that that overall, that if you become pregnant and you, if you have known cardiovascular disease, and this can be something as simple as just having high blood pressure, high cholesterol, etc., that your risk of having a bad outcome also goes up. And really, one of the things that we've seen, and this is a paper that was, I, I want to say published just yesterday, is that the biggest you know, the biggest risk factor for preventable death in the entire world is high blood pressure. And high blood pressure is something that sounds pretty benign and it doesn't arouse the same sort of interest as, you know, other conditions like, you know, cancer or ALS or others do, but it is the single greatest cause of preventable death both in this country as well as around the world. And it's actually rising. So, there, so, 
and and that is one of the reasons why uh, American obstetric outcomes, so maternal outcomes for Americans is are worse than other developed countries is because we have so many women um, who are not getting the right care for their hearts and their bodies that we should be doing. And in fact, not only are we unable to close that gap, we're actually doing worse over time. So, you know, I think, um, you know, we knew a lot less about heart heart disease in pregnancy, uh, and we know a lot more now, but there's still so much more that we don't understand. Uh, but I, but I am, but what I have seen is that this is a field that uh, a lot of people are now interested in. In fact, one of the fellows that I'm working with right now on service is uh, that was that is her interest, and uh, so I'm really pleased to see that you know the new generation of uh, cardiologists are going to be a lot more focused on this than perhaps we have been in the past. It's never too late to start making a change, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. I do want to talk more about high blood pressure, um, because I think everybody's kind of vaguely aware that it's bad. When you go into a doctor's office for routine checkups, it's always one of the things that, uh, that, that gets tested. You can, a lot of supermarkets or places or uh, drugstores allow you to go in and test your own blood pressure. Um, but, I think it's another one of those medical terms that we all kind of use and we all know it's a signal if it's too high of bad things, but yeah. we often don't really know why. And I think that a lot of physicians or you know other people in healthcare, when they're talking about blood pressure, they just kind of assume that, oh, yeah, everyone understands this because it's so common. But really, I think it is a concept that I think is worth reiterating. Um, and, uh, you know, when I, you know, I had the opportunity to speak to Terry Gross, and one of the questions that she asked me, she had, she's like, well, what is blood pressure? And initially, I was like, well, is she, is this, you know, is this a, like, is she trying to test me? Is this a test? But then I realized that, oh, no, this is something that's so common, but yet we spend so little time in explaining this concept. And the other thing I'll just say before I get into this is that, you know, a lot of people are interested in, oh, what's the new device that I can use to take care of my heart? And sometimes I, I know for a lot of that, I just say, well, the most probably the most effective device we have to take care of heart disease is just a simple blood pressure cuff. So let's dive a bit deeper into what what you know what hypertension is so hypertension is essentially having high blood pressure and how do we and what does blood pressure represent so every time you have um uh your heart beats it essentially sends a wave uh, essentially a ripple that goes across uh your body through all your arteries in the body and this can be and so it has this ripple has a higher number which is this which is a pressure generated when the heart beats and then the lower number which essentially shows how much pressure is in the blood vessel uh when that sort of pulse is not you know going through it and re- represents in fact the pressure in the blood vessels uh and over time if you have high blood pressure this can cause uh you to have more inflammation and more inflammation leads to more atherosclerosis so so you know when we're talking about atherosclerosis which is where we started one of the big drivers of atherosclerosis is in fact high blood pressure which increases inflammation which then in fact drives more atherosclerosis um and so essentially uh the uh, what are the risk factors for high blood pressure and one of those is dietary salt especially salt that's in processed foods is probably the leading cause of high blood pressure both in this country and around the world a lot of people think that oh you know if they just avoid putting salt from the shaker in their food they're somehow prevent protecting themselves from that that but really it's in your processed foods like your deli meats your breads your pizzas etc where we get a lot of most of our uh, dietary sodium. Um, salt is sodium chloride, and sodium is really what, what drives that. Um, so, you know, what can we do about it? The, the the fascinating thing about blood pressure or high blood pressure or hypertension, I mean, all these terms are often used interchangeably, is that we have excellent medicines for it that come in all sorts of different categories that are super cheap, and you can really... Uh, that you know, most doctors and nurses are very comfortable using. So really, this isn't something that's rocket science. This isn't something that's waiting for that next big advance um, to sort of shake things up. But it's something that really should be available to all of us. And yet, we're still struggling to make sure to get rid of this public health uh, issue. 
because I think people just don't don't care about it enough. It just doesn't, um, you know, it, you know, a lot of people feel that they can feel when their blood pressure is high, and you really can't feel it. Your blood pressure can be sky high, and you may never feel it once. So the only way to know is by checking it, and and, that, and you can check it either by going to your doctor or by having a blood pressure monitor at home. And it's probably the single most important thing that you can do for your health is uh, keeping an eye on your blood pressure and making sure that it doesn't... Uh, and if it is going high, and I would say that the average number is around 120 or 80, and if it stays consistently over, say, 130 over 90, um, and 130 is the top number and 90 is the lower number, um and if it stays higher than that, then I think it's worth going to your physician to see what you could do uh, to control your blood pressure. So there are two things I want to dig into a little bit deeper here. Uh, you talked a bit about inflammation, and I feel like inflammation is something I do want to drill into a little bit since you brought it up. There's a lot of research about inflammation and a lot of really splashy headlines about it, claims about it, diets that seek to lower it. I feel like inflammation has become a bit of a buzzword that's been grabbed by some certain industries to, well, sell things. So it's one of these words where I feel like we're starting to, it's, it's, it's kind of running away with itself and becoming a whole industry into itself. So can you unpack the term inflammation a little bit and what we're actually talking about from a medical perspective to help some of the listeners understand a little bit better what might be evidence-based science and medicine versus what might be some of the hype? Because I know it's out there. All right, so I will I will I will explain what inflammation is and how it's connected to heart disease, uh, and then we'll talk a bit and we'll try and sort through some of the hype versus some of what what we know. So inflammation is essentially a product of the body's immune system. So the uh, so our body has evolved this really really kick-ass immune system that is always on the lookout for threats. And when we were, uh, you know, really new on this planet and we were still figuring our way out, the big uh, threats that we faced uh, to our um, survival were three things. They were um, infections. Uh, there were injuries, such as if you, you know, if you got, you know, uh, some anything that uh, exposed your blood to the outside world, so getting hit in the head by a rock or falling, you know, uh, from a branch. And the third uh, major cause of uh, mortality was really starvation, because you know, you, you know, you caught a deer, you had a great feast, and then maybe you'd go a few days without really having a meal. So our body developed very sort of stringent mechanisms to protect us from um, those things. And one of the ways, one of the sort of global ways that we are able to prevent uh, morbidity from all of these causes is, in fact, inflammation. So obviously, when, when, when you have an infection, your immune system is alerted to an outsider it, that this can rev up uh, the uh, immune system and it can essentially launch a cascade of uh, functions that can target these uh, in a foreign entities, essentially. So that's one. But the same, but inflammation is also very central to how we fight off injuries. So if you have an injury, so if you have, for example, a cut and uh, the immune system will get activated and will form a blood clot that will essentially attempt to seal off uh, this sort of open, open sort of uh, wounds, so, so to speak. Uh, and but the same thing is also true for starvation. So you know, if you if you are so a lot of our immune system or inflammation or the immune system is actually linked to maintaining um, adequate amount of nutrition uh, by in fact inhibiting some of the basic functions of uh, hormones such as uh, say uh, insulin, which uh, you know gets rid of glucose glucose in your blood and transfers it into the tissue, while inflammation can, in fact, keep uh, insulin from working so that you always have sugar in your blood because your brain doesn't want to go without sugar ever uh, because it's dependent on sugar for uh, its basic functions. Now, with these three concepts in mind, 
all three of these are in fact directly related to the onset and development and in fact and the sort of uh morbidity of heart disease so atherosclerosis is primarily an inflammatory process and one of the reasons why we're seeing a lot of heart disease is that now that we don't have those classic causes of death, so that people don't die of you know falling off of cliffs and uh, as much as they used to, I guess, and people don't have as many. Again, you know, this is it's a, it's almost a, you know weird thing to say in the middle of an infectious pandemic, but you know traditionally infection the infections as a cause of death have been really dwindling. Um, in not only in the United States and other uh, industrialized countries, but really around the world. And people don't die of starvation. If anything, people die of things like diabetes, which are because uh, essentially, and all of these, uh, and so all of the things that we now die of, like diabetes, like hypertension, like heart disease, are in fact because of a immune system or because of persistent inflammation. Um, and and yet, the, uh, and in fact, there is some evidence to suggest that agents that can tame the immune system can, in fact, reduce your incidence of heart disease. So there's been some recent work done with a drug for gout, uh, which is an inflammatory condition that affects the joints. And this drug is called colchicine. It's been around, you know, forever. And we are seeing that that has, uh, that can reduce the risk of heart disease and heart attacks in patients who've had them before. Is it the only reason why people have heart disease? Absolutely not. Uh, and in fact, it, you know, right now, it all, you know, controlling inflammation only offers marginal benefit over some of the established ways that we have of reducing in, uh, heart disease, such as lowering statins and, uh, sorry, lowering cholesterol in your diet have, or taking cholesterol medications such as statins that reduce cholesterol, controlling your blood pressure, preventing smoking, which again, the re one of the reasons what makes smoking so bad is that it also revs up the immune system, which can accelerate atherosclerosis and exercising, which is, I think, probably one of our best ways of controlling um, or at least keeping our immune system in check. So, you know, I, I will say that, you know, a lot of the sort of traditional ways or traditional means that we've had to treat uh, heart disease actually work on some of those inflammatory mechanisms, but we don't have a lot of specific medications or practices that s reduce heart disease solely by reducing inflammation, although that might change in the future. Having said that, you know, just going to this sort of idea of hype and by, uh, there there is a lot of hype about you know, diets that reduce, you know, that uh, that are pro or sort of anti-inflammatory. And really, we don't have a lot of data for those so far. So, uh, you know, I would say that we know a lot more about how inflammation is, in fact, one of the key drivers of um, heart disease. And I, you know, and I did write about this both in the book at great length, but also uh, for an op-ed I wrote for the New York Times uh, last year. But I do think that the way to sort of overcome that is by actually practicing some of the boring things that we've known for a long time, such as reducing blood pressure, um, reducing uh, cholesterol, uh, stopping smoking, um, and exercising. So even though we know a lot more about inflammation, the way to sort of address that is actually through some of the sort of things that we've actually known for a long time. It's always so frustrating for us humans that like immediate rewards to hear that sometimes the solutions are not sexy and long term. <laughs> We're not so good with those, are we? Yeah, there, there require a lot of work. I mean, I, I, I you, and, and that's what, and those are all the things that have, it is those non-sexy things, those non-shiny, uh, interventions that have actually led to the vast improvement that we've seen in reduction in rates of heart disease. And I know that, you know, there's always that new, new sort of fancy thing, but really, I think, that's what we're really missing. What we're missing is that we're not doing a good enough job of, of of doing some of the basic things that we already know. So, you know, one of the things that I'm really interested in is, reg is us regulating um, salt and processed foods better. We don't do a good enough job, and countries and states that have done a better job have actually led to reductions in 
uh, how many people have high blood pressure and how many people have heart disease down the road. So uh, because we're so focused on the pill, the magic pill that will come and will just you know fix our problems without us doing anything. And really, it's our lifestyles that have led to this epidemic of heart disease. And unless we address those key sort of things, it, it will be it will remain the most common cause of death in our society. I also wanted to talk about statins, because that was definitely something you talked at length about in the book. And that seems to be at times a point of high frustration for you in the way that the world or sometimes patients perceive them or that people are very resistant to them or that sometimes controversy sprouts up around them. Yeah, so I, I mean, I'll, I'll just say this because I feel like every time someone says something good about statins, they're immediately labeled as a hack for, you know, quote unquote, big pharma. Um, I don't, I've actually don't receive any money of any sort from any pharmaceutical company or device company in the world. Uh, statins are medications that lower uh, cholesterol in the body, and they are some of the best tools that we have to reduce the risk of heart disease. Uh, like any tool, it's, it's heart, statins are not a vaccine for heart disease. So it's not like if you take statin that somehow magically you will have no risk of heart disease. And the higher your risk of heart disease, the more benefit you are going to get from statin. So if your risk of heart disease is very, very low to begin with, you're not going to get a lot of benefit from heart disease. But, but if your risk of heart disease is high or if you've already had heart disease, then really it's one of the best things that we know that are available. Now, what is the reason why there's so much controversy around statins is because uh, so many people have an indication for statins because heart disease is so common and because our lifestyles are so poor for uh, for our hearts uh, that I, I think a lot of people have, you know, raised legitimate questions about the benefits of statins uh, and also their side effects. And I, I will say that, you know, like any other medication in the world, uh, statins are not free of side effects. But if we actually look at the data and statins are, you know, I would say probably the best studied medication in the history of science, they're some of the safest drugs we have. A lot of people have concerns about muscle aches and muscle pains. And even though there are some people who will develop uh, sort of significant inflammation of the muscles, a condition called myositis, uh, the, 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 what, what really uh, gets a lot more attention is a routine muscle aches that a lot of people develop on statins. Uh, but really, if you look at the randomized trials in which people were actually blinded from, uh, the fact that whether they were getting a placebo versus they were getting a statin, uh, you start to see that there's actually very little difference, if any, between routine aches and pains that people have with a placebo versus a statin. And now, because there's so much uh, misinformation and, and really essentially, for lack of a better word, fake news about statins, a lot of people are have these misconceptions that statins are actually not safe, that they cause a lot of muscle aches and pains, and even... Just this knowledge, just this expectation that you will develop a side effect to statins is actually leading to what's essentially called the nocebo effect, which is just like the, the placebo effect is an expectation of benefit from a drug, even though it may not have any active ingredient that's doing so. And the nocebo effect is, in fact, the opposite effect in which if you expect or if your body expects to have a bad effect from a medication, that it actually is a self-fulfilling pro prophecy in some ways that your that your risk of having that is goes up, um, and a lot of people who are who are uh, you know again they're I, this is no way diminishing you know the experience that people have, but a lot of these misinformation is being spread by people who have a vested financial interest that they are trying to get people to take alternative therapies, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The fact is that all major statins are now generic. They are very, very cheap. There's very little money to be made from the sort of pharmaceutical companies for these drugs. So, so really, I think uh, these are medications that I think that if you are at high risk for heart disease, they are your best friend. They are one of your best friends in reducing your risk of heart disease. And I, you know, my own dad takes uh, statin and after he had a heart attack and I just told his doctor to cramp, crank it up all the way because the higher the dose, the lower his risk of having that, having a heart attack again. 
I have so many things that I would love to talk about, but I know our time is running short. Um, so I, I'm at a loss of what to, what I can fill our, our final 10 minutes with. Um, I think probably what I want to talk about is some of the, I, for lack of a better term, technology that we have right now in order to deal with heart disease. So if we set aside drugs for a second, um, the heart is one of the places where we are actually getting in there and like, putting stuff in, installing stuff into our bodies. There's a, a lovely quote, um, many lovely quotes, but one of the ones in your book that I really liked was um, uh, that we often need both a doctor and a mechanic sometimes when it comes to some of the treatments for uh, heart disease. Um, so I think maybe I would love for you to give us a really quick overview of of some of the the maybe best knowns and lesser known kind of modern technology that can be installed uh, to help us out when our heart starts to starts to shudder? Right. So, you know, one of the beauties of the heart is that at its very core, it is a very, it is a very basic organism, uh, sorry, basic organ. And its main function is essentially to pump blood. So even though there are other organs that look like they're not doing much, like the liver or the kidneys, their functions are actually a lot more complex. The heart is essentially a mechanical pump, and therefore in some patients who who develop pretty bad heart failure and that their pump is actually failing, those are patients that end up benefiting from new technologies that's actually developed right, essentially right in front of our eyes or in front of my eyes that didn't exist when I started my um, medical school career, and that technology is called a left ventricular assist device. And this is essentially a pump that can be planted in, essentially sutured into a failing heart, and that essentially takes over the function of the heart and pumps blood to the entire body. And so patients who have LVADs, and now tens of thousands of those patients are actually here in the United States, those patients actually, most of them will not have a pulse. Because unlike the normal human heart, the heart, the blood that flows through an LVAD is continuous. Uh, these patients, uh, if their LVAD stops, for example, if they um, run out of batteries, they actually could potentially die sometimes within seconds uh, because they're so dependent on their pump to uh, live. And these patients can live for several years. And you might actually have run across them at the grocery store or when you're out in the mall, and you may not have even noticed because these patients can carry their batteries under in vests that they can wear under their shirts or in small fanny packs around their waist. Um, and to me, this is one of the most fascinating technologies that we've ever developed. Again, you know, the 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 more the, the more we raise the stakes, the more the, we we can run into complications as well. And these devices are not uh, come with many many challenging complications for patients, including a very high risk of bleeding, of strokes, of infections. And yet there are a substantial number of patients in home. This can really extend life and give them years that they may have never seen had this technology not existed. And and to me, what what is really fascinating about this is this is, in fact, one of the first few forays we've made into this whole concept of transhumanism, where essentially we're starting to replace our own sort of mortal organs with technological uh, feats that we just never had before, and really to me speaks of the future of uh, medicine in which we are now starting to blur the boundary that exists between man and machine, and when we have had a lot of times when these pumps don't work, these patients can get very, very sick, and we actually have to call the engineers to come and do their work. Um, so, again, I think, uh, you know, I think this is that they're presenting a window into the future, and I think requires us to, to kind of take a pause and appreciate not only what they mean, but also what could be the consequences of what this technological advance could do, and or what it means to be a human being. One of the consequences that you touch on, both when you're talking about LVADs, but also when you talk about defibrillation, in particular defibrillators that have been installed inside the body, um, is what happens at end of life? Because having a piece of machinery inside our bodies doesn't necessarily and quite often means that that machinery is going to keep going after parts of our body are ready to give up and will just sort of propel it forward, which of course just adds a whole lot of complication to an already complicated time when we're thinking about end of life. 
Absolutely. And I think this is why, the, the you know, a lot of times what we've seen is that the technological progress can sometimes exceed or, you know, outpace the ethical frameworks that come to define, you know, how do we deal with this technology um, as human beings. Um, and so, some some of those challenges are sometimes really, really heightened when, you know, the end of, you know, our, our life is approaching. So a lot of these patients with LVADs, they will die of causes other than heart failure, because their heart failure has been effectively overcome with uh, the LVAD. So they will die of infections, they, will, they could die of strokes, in which case one of the final things or final acts that needs to be performed is that their LVAD needs to be turned off. And for and again, you know, I think it is like any other piece of technology, uh, any type of durable medical technology that, you know, turning it off does not, in fact, mean that we are, uh, that the person is, you know, committing suicide or this is euthanasia. It's really, in fact, just, uh, you know, us in some ways allowing natural deaths to happen, but it can cause a lot of disconcertation, both for uh, you know the patients' families, or for physicians and doctors, and which is why I really think that you know, as much as we need to celebrate technology, we also need to have some of these difficult conversations, just so that we're all going into these situations with our eyes wide open, and that we understand what the implications of these technologies are—not just in how they let us live, but how what they might mean when we eventually meet uh, our deaths. And which is why I think one another reason why I think I wrote the book was to take these conversations not just from, you know, the boring medical, you know, lecture halls and, and but re- really introduce them to a broader audience so that we can start having these conversations as a community of people rather than just simply one that's left for academic circles. The section you have about turning off a defib- uh, defibrillator and that most people who have them don't know that they can be turned off, don't even know that's an option, that that conversation isn't happening. And a lot of those people at their end of their life, they have those really startlingly unpleasant shocks just sometimes minutes before they die, sometimes over and over again. That that really, will, I think, will stick with me um, as something to make sure that if I need something like that, or someone I love needs something like that. I want to make sure that that conversation happens. <laughs> well, and I and I hope that you know, as as physicians and and patients, you know, the more we can all be on the same page, the more we can part be part of the same team, and we're speaking in sort of similar terms. I think the more aligned we can be in all those in all those aspects. I think again. You know, a lot of times, you know, the technology and the, you know, can be, can move at a much faster pace. Medical interventions can move at a much faster pace. And a lot of times the consequences of what those uh, advances and decisions um, may not be entirely addressed at the time of um, when that intervention is performed. Um, and I and I hope that the culture of medicine does change and we start having these conversations in a much more transparent way and really getting our patients along in that conversation rather than just simply um, being in some ways pedantic or um, about them. So we don't have a, a ton of time left, but I do want to talk very briefly about how you finish the book, which is talking about uh, how concerned you are about our ability to make treatments, whether they're preventative treatments or treatments for heart disease uh, or heart failure as it progresses, to make sure that those treatments and some of the new stuff that's coming out gets out there equally. Because as we know, with the world we live in right now, as is being made very clear to us right now with the things that are going on in the world here in 2020, a lot of times it just isn't distributed equally. And uh, definitely at the end of the book, you are thinking very clearly and it seems it's definitely a thing on your mind and there's a, a story there that really stuck with me um, about a patient who years after a heart transplant had to go off his meds because he couldn't afford them and it is an absolutely devastating story yeah I think you know you know heart disease is um as much a political condition, an economic condition, a racial condition, as really anything else we have in modern society. You know, heart disease is not like 
you know, it's not like COVID that we are waiting for a vaccine that's going to come and save us all. The treatments and uh, for heart disease are readily available that you can get, uh, and and everyone should have access to them. Um, and 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 really, the struggle is this disconnect between getting those treatments to the people who need them, and a lot of times. Uh, the people who need them but aren't getting them are racial and ethnic minorities, are are immigrants, are are people who who have so many other disadvantages in life, and then now also have, and that is that those disadvantages are being manifest in the form of heart disease. And so, really, I think reframing heart disease away from just a purely medical problem to one that is essentially a problem of social inequity, of racial inequity, uh, and of economic inequity. I mean, that is the way that we will continue to make progress. Because unless we address those issues, I don't think that we'll be able to really bend the curve any further than we've been able to, because we've had great success in getting all these treatments to the haves. And now the question is, well, how do we get them to the have-nots? How do we get them to every part of this world? Because what we're seeing is that heart disease is rising um, around the world. So, in, you know, I'm from originally from Pakistan, but if you look at places like India, China, Pakistan, Indonesia, really all um, developing countries, heart disease is skyrocketing. I mean, we've usually thought about heart disease as a disease of, you know, in industrialized countries, but it is an epidemic that's spreading across the world. And even though we're right now probably rightfully so focused on COVID-19, but really, you know, I do feel that one day, and that day may not be far, we can get a handle on COVID-19, and yet we'll still be left um, with this worldwide uh, condition that's on the rise um, and is in very, very closely linked to um, the injustices that we see in society. And I do hope that that is the lens that we use to view this condition going forward. Heather, thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. It was wonderful to have you here. It was it was great to get the opportunity to talk to you and your audience about something that you know I I'm extremely passionate about and I hope that uh, people will pick up this book and um, learn some of some of the fascinating stories that I've had the pr- privilege to share. I hope they do. I wish we could have talked about stents, but unfortunately we can't fit everything in. So if you want to learn about stents, you're going to have to read the book. Thank you so much, Rochelle, for having me, and thank you to everyone listening in. Uh, it's been a pleasure. If you want to learn more about Heder Varich, his work, his writing, or his most recent book, State of the Heart, exploring the history, science, and future of cardiac disease, you will find links made for clicking in the show notes for this episode and on our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Science for the People. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgower, and me, Rochelle Saunders. 